Thank you for downloading our podcast. This Christmas season, we consider Luke's testimony of Christ. Luke sets out to write an orderly account so that his friend Theophilus can be certain regarding the things he has been taught. What is Luke fundamentally teaching us about the significance of Christ and Christ's entrance into history? Well, as we pick up where we left off in Luke's gospel, we think of the the context of this. John the Baptist was predicted. We have the birth of Christ being predicted through an unprecedented uh, situation, to be honest. We, We find with John the Baptist, it's not shocking of the Lord overcoming barrenness. We, we've seen that in covenant history. But for the Lord to bring about his champion uh, through a virgin, a maiden, a maiden who is betrothed, a maiden that we said is most likely a, an orphan, or at least the implication in Luke's gospel, is that certainly a possibility. And, and the point of that is that we see that she is in the most humble position. She has no advocate, really, her husband at most. But really beyond that, as we mentioned, this is someone who historically uh, would have tried to eke out some sort of a living, hopefully had some children, raised a family, and then eventually died. And so when we think of, of Mary being used by the Lord in her profession, I am your servant, what a wonderful statement that's made there. And as we mentioned last time, we we didn't know the connection between the stories. So if if we imagine ourselves hearing this for the first time, we we wouldn't know why there's this story of Mary, why there's this story of Elizabeth, other than John the Baptist is a forerunner to the Messiah. But now we find out that Elizabeth is actually a relative of Mary, possibly an aunt, we we don't know. But, But the implication of this is that Mary is not adopted by Elizabeth because she has to travel. And as she travels, we we find this interaction between these two women. And again, in Luke's gospel, you can almost say one of the sub-themes of his gospel is the theology of women uh, and and how they're uh, significant in covenant history and find their identity in this same Messiah. As we have here the interaction of women, and and we might wonder, you know, why is this song of Mary, this this Magnificat, uh, Magnificent, basically, is is what Magnificat means, and it's coming from the Greek, that she's magnifying, she's she's being greater. Why, Why is this song so significant, and how is it that we, as the Lord's people, can sing this, and how does this even overturn precedence? In covenant history. In other words, what is Luke doing? What, what is the significance of these women? Why, why is he calling this all to our attention, more so than Matthew, uh, who also has uh, the, the longer birth narrative as well? And so as we consider this, we'll see simply exalting the humble and humbling the exalted. And as we look at this, and we look first at exalting the humble. We notice this young maiden, right? This is a woman who hasn't compromised her marriage vows in any way as Mary, and and we uh, mentioned last time, it's very 
forceful in the Greek language that this is a woman who has never known a man. This is her profession. This is what Luke tells us. And so we know this is a miraculous event. And as we, we have this woman rushing over to her relative uh, Elizabeth, we, we wonder, why is she here? What's going on? Well, we know that Elizabeth is the one who is pregnant with the child who is a forerunner to the Messiah. And this is an important child. Uh, we think of Isaiah 40, of the Lord promising to level the paths, bringing his people out of exile, and bringing them to a way of life. We think of Malachi 3, a very explicit reference of Elijah going before uh, the Messiah and, and being here as this child who is significant. He's the one who brings the refiner's fire. So again, there's that review. You have the Levitical priesthood, Zechariah, Elizabeth, uh, who are you know the priests of Levi from a prestigious line. They can't bring the purification to Israel. Uh, the sacrifices merely model, anticipate the true sacrifice of Christ. They can't bring the cleansing. But we have here in covenant history the assurance that as the Lord takes away Elizabeth's reproach, right? She's the one that Mary's going to see. She has uh, been barren, and so we, we brought out how there's that sort of controversy that's going on. You know, why is it that this Levite woman cannot have a child? Why, why is God so discouraged with them and, and disciplining them in such a way? Now, the text doesn't tell us that's what's going on. In fact, it tells us the opposite. But this is what the culture would think. And we know that because it says, the Lord has taken away my reproach, which means that the people have looked down on her. This is the reality of her life. And now the Lord has brought about this redemption. And so as Mary travels to the hill country in Judah, we, we don't know where Zachariah and Elizabeth live. Uh, it's possible that, as we mentioned, they're elderly. Uh, he's doing probably his last stint in the temple. As we mentioned, this is a chance of a lifetime. Not every priest gets to do this. And this is probably before his retirement and so it's possible that maybe they have a place that's outside of Jerusalem. We, we don't know. We don't know the details. And Luke isn't pleased to tell us, and that's fine. But what we do know is that Mary goes with haste to Elizabeth's home. And as she enters the house of Zechariah, so notice there it's Zechariah who's the ownership or the owner of this house, and she's greeted by Elizabeth, we, we notice there's this significant event that we have the baby leaping in Elizabeth's womb. Now, in terms of that, why is that? It's because the Holy Spirit has come upon them. Now, right here, when, when we think about this declaration that's made, and, and we have the Holy Spirit coming upon Elizabeth, that we're having this interaction that, that it's not a tense interaction, even though it could be, right? Elizabeth, priestly line prestigious, Mary, orphan. Could be some jealousy going on here. Uh, why is it you're the one that gets to bring in the Messiah and I'm the one that brings in the forerunner? How, how can that be? But what do we find? We find a blessing, an exclamation. There, there's no, hi, how are you? But we have this declaration that's made, blessed are you among women. 
and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Right here, this language is something that, that we can miss. Because when Elizabeth says, my reproach has been taken away, you think of, of decades of people looking at her a little cross, you know, a little from the side eye and saying, I wonder what's going on over there that the Lord hasn't blessed her. So for a decade, she's endured this. And you would think that she'd wonder, why is it that this young maiden who's engaged is the one who doesn't have to endure all that? But what do we find? That's not at all what she says. She says, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And this is a, a blessing that's significant in terms of the Old Testament because Deuteronomy 28 verse 4, there's a promise in terms of the uniqueness in the Mosaic economy that as national Israel, the people of God obey, they're going to experience the fruit of the womb. And so right here, there's this, this blessing that's given to Mary that right here, you're, you're seen as a blessed one, not only in terms of the Lord, but in terms of the Mosaic arrangement. There's that exaltation. And she's also blessed among women. Now, there's something significant here, which we'll get into more this evening when we look at Zachariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. But already here, we're seeing a, a precedent that's overturned. Because what do we have in the Garden of Eden when we have there Satan interacting with the woman, Eve, the mother of the living, right? Giver of life is basically what her name means. And you think about Satan interacting with Eve and, and holding out for her what? Another word, another promise. You can be God. You can be over God. Just do this. Seize the fruit and you will make God your servant. Don't find your joy in serving him. That's not joyful. That's constraining. That's miserable. And Eve is the one who decides that the fruit is pleasing to the eye. But what we have right here in a subtle way as Luke casts this story, remember as he writes this deliberate account by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's showing us an overturning of that precedent. You have Elizabeth who could claim her own significance in the priestly line, but she elevates and exalts the young maiden, the one who may very well be an orphan and nobody in society, and she willingly places herself in an inferior position under her, even though genealogically, culturally, everything about her is superior. And so we're finding here how the Lord is already overturning that precedent. But we find also it's in the fruit of her womb. It's a significant language here. The fruit of her womb, Mary is a woman who's also overturning Eve. That we have here Eve where she has Cain and Abel and you have that battle that wages between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. You have Cain rising up, slaughtering Abel. And then you have Seth who enters into the picture where again you see that the covenantal line continues. When we call to our attention, we think of Luke even in his genealogy identifying Christ as a son of Adam going back to this creation story and the fall of humanity. We see how the Lord is overturning that even again. 
Because now we have before us the the very mother who brings into history the triumphant seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And Elizabeth recognizes the significance of this reality. And so when Elizabeth gives this response, she's understanding the, the priority of Jesus Christ over the child in her womb. Even as the Lord has taken away her reproach, she understands that her reproach is ultimately taken away in Christ Jesus. What is more in terms of this Old Testament blessing and these Old Testament echoes? We have this um, affirmation in verse 43, where she said, How is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now again, this is the mother of my kurios, the the, the Lord, the one who's over all, the, the triumphant one, emphasizing the lordship of Christ and who he is, like what you have with the song of Moses, Uh, That assurance that God is king over all, rules over all, mighty, majestic, powerful. All all these things that should be coming to our mind. As she gives this blessing, there's a subtle reference here to what we have with David himself, with the Ark of the Covenant. And we think of the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel 6 verse 9 uh, of David affirming this as being the vessel of God, the vessel of the Lord. And so there's something significant where it's not the Ark of the Covenant that's worthy of worship as Mary is not the one that we worship. But it's seeing the Lord's purpose that's being carried out in his uh, means uh, to his goal, to his redemptive purpose. manifestations or showing his redemptive mercy. And so Elizabeth is praising the reality that Mary truly has the God-man in her womb. That as John says, God tabernacled among us. Here is that same sort of celebration, the, the tabernacling of Christ in her presence, recognizing that truly this child who is about to be born as a child of Psalm 110. You know, my Lord says uh, to the Lord, you know, it's David looking ahead to the coming of Christ, the great Melchizedekian priest. And you can find all sorts of echoes of this throughout the Old Testament. But the point is that Elizabeth knows that it's not her child that truly takes away her reproach. It's the Lord. It's ultimately the Messiah who is the one who takes away her reproach. But going on, as we set the stage to the Song of Mary, that there's something else that's going on here. She says in verse 44, the the affirmation that the sound of your greeting came to my ears, right? So she hears Mary and the baby leaped for joy. Now, there's another subtle thing going on here in the text where there's an overturning of the previous precedent in terms uh, of God's family and what we've seen. Because we find this same language of leaping or striving in terms of what happens with Isaac and Rebekah, where she wonders, you know, what's going on within me? These babies, there's just turmoil within my womb. I, I can feel it. And the Lord makes clear to her that the older will serve the younger, and the younger will be triumphant. And later on, it's Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, as we see uh, that being developed. And so basically, it's a reference to Genesis 25, 22. 
So in terms of, of that wrestling, there, there's a holy war endeavor going on within the womb already with the infants. But notice here how that's overturned, that there's also a holy war that's going on. But instead of seeing it as children who are in competition, it's a child celebrating the reality of Christ, the Messiah, being present. And so the child leaps for joy, doesn't leap for conflict, doesn't leap to overpower, doesn't leap to uh, strive, but there's a leaping for joy, an understanding of an advent in covenant history that is about to manifest itself that is unprecedented. The forerunner, the Messiah, together, entering history, bringing about the ultimate victory. As we can find, again, not only in terms of that striving, but we think of Malachi uh, 4 verse 2 or, or 3 verse 20 in this, anyway. 4 verse 2, we think of Malachi. And we think of this reference here of what's going on with a celebration of the Messiah and how the Lord's people will leap and tread upon the serpent. So all these themes coming through here, Going back to the reference of what we have with the fall, the triumph of how the Lord is magnifying his name, showing his glory in what he has promised to do. And what do we find then is the ultimate celebration? We have this celebration that Elizabeth professes the beauty that Mary is the one who believes what was spoken to her. So here it seems to be an implication that Elizabeth... Maybe Zachariah has received more prophecy. We, we don't know how she knows this. But whatever the case is, the Holy Spirit is upon her. This is her, her blessing, her benediction uh, to Mary. That the Lord is overturning what has gone before. He is showing the triumphant fulfillment of his promise. And so we, we set the stage here and we think about the reality of this working out. But notice also as we have the Lord exalting the humble, not only in terms of Elizabeth placing herself under Mary and, and propping up Mary and showing the Lord's purpose, but we think even as we skim through the song, just very briefly looking at a few things. Verse 48, the Lord looks upon the humble estate of his servant, right? We have verse 49, He's doing great things for her. So it's the Lord taking this humble servant and exalting, doing great things. We have verse 52, uh, the exalted those of the humble estate. So the Lord again is bringing up those who are humble and exalting them and, and putting it in this place of definitive rest. Going on, verse 54, he helped his servant Israel. Why? because of the remembrance of his mercy. And so right there, we, we look at the song and we see these precedents that are called to mind. We think back to Exodus 15, Song of Moses, Song of Miriam, celebrating the reality of who God is as a great redeemer. But we find that the flip side of this is also that the Lord is the one who is humbling the exalted. And that's the other side in the Song of Moses, isn't it? That Egypt, the Egyptians, Pharaoh uh, is proud of what they're going to do, only to find that the Lord's going to put them in their place. And this is where we look at, at what the Lord is doing, that the exalted will not stand. Notice Mary then, 
how Mary begins her song. My soul magnifies the Lord. Mary the one is the one who recognizes that even in her highest state of being the vessel of bringing in the messianic warrior, it's not Mary, it's the Lord. It's the Lord to which we are called to look and to see as a substance of our hope and our faith and our life. It is in the Lord, in the Lord alone. And that's what Mary sang. And, and it's Mary, the humble one who is exalted in the Lord, who once again humbles herself, recognizing that it's only the Lord who is worthy of praise. She is not finding her exaltation in and of herself. Elizabeth does not find her exaltation in John the Baptist, but it's in recognizing the Lord's redemptive mercy and purpose that manifests itself. But going on as we look at these words, notice what she goes on to say. The God of my Savior, he is the one who's worthy of praise. Uh, we have then uh, the assurance that the Lord in his name, uh, verse 49, is holy. Holy is his name. Think about that declaration. This is something that ultimately humbles all of us. No matter how exalted we may think we are, when we truly think about the holiness of God and holy is his name. This means that God's name, the, the essence of his being. Unfortunately, in our, our culture, we, we've lost the theology of naming, if you will. But in, in the ancient Near East, the name would usually communicate something about who the person is. It would identify that person. And I guess to some extent in our day and age, if we take on a family name, it's identifying ourselves with a particular family. But you can find in Scripture when the Lord changes a name, it, it means something. There's a purpose to it. And so right here, when Mary says, holy is his name. It means that the Lord is the essence of holiness. He's done great things for me. Holy is his name. In other words, it's not Mary is holy in and of herself. God is a holy one. And when you think about what holy really means, it means being separate, fully sanctified, the fullness of glory. And right there in that line, all of us should start to tremble. And thinking about, my goodness, who is this God who is so holy, so majestic, who looks upon such humble people that we are those who, who like Israel, can go see the deliverance and then go and complain about the situation of the water and wonder if God's sovereign enough to overcome it. But holy is his name. A God who should truly be completely removed from us, a God who is truly in and of himself beyond our grasp, if we really think about the implications of that. But notice this, verse 58 or 51, he shows his strength, his power is manifested. So as God is one who is unattainable in, in the sense of who we are as humans, we, we can't come into his presence on our own. But what does he do? He scatters the proud, recalling for us the deliverance of, of Israel. A people enslaved, a people who shouldn't be delivered, 
but God delivers them. He, he, he concerns himself with, with their well-being. They don't deserve it, but he does. And he humbles the oppressors and exalts those who are humbled and shows their victory in him. Holy is his name, manifesting his power as he scatters a reference again, Genesis 11. There's so much Old Testament theology, it, we, we can't even bring it all out. But you think in Genesis 11 of the earthlings are going to take this great God of heaven. They're going to penetrate his throne room, approach his holiness, and they're going to bring him down to earth. And they're going to lead him around like a little dog on a leash. Only to find that's not at all what's going to happen. The Lord is holy. They can't take God and lead him around on a little leash. The Lord scatters them. He has to look down upon this endeavor using, you know, uh, man-centered or anthropomorphic language. Basically just using language that we would understand as men and applying it to God is what that simply means. He has to look down, see what these little earthlings are doing. He scatters them. They are not those who will humble him. He takes the, the exalted and he humbles them in his action by a mere command. Going on. I mean, verse 53, we think about the hungry. Think about this, this language. Now, this, this hungry is something that Luke's going to play on. Because we think of Christ being hungry as he meets Satan in the wilderness and he faces temptation. We think of the Beatitudes that Luke will go on to using this same language. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so when, when we hear the filling of the hungry with good things and the rich, he's sent away empty-handed. We, we can think of this in earthly categories. So we think of the hungry being filled, that, that they're just going to be gluttonous, attending banquets all the time, and those who are rich are just not going to experience the prosperity of God. But when you bring out Christ being tempted, you bring out the Beatitudes, you understand the deeper meaning of what Luke is getting at. That the assurance is that those who truly hunger recognize this, this, this world is always going to leave us in a place of unrest, right? We're, we're never going to find our fulfillment and contentment here. We, we can't. It's a fallen, broken, cursed creation that needs glorification. We're never going to find fullness here. No matter how successful we may be in life, no matter how much we may acquire, no matter how much wealth we may generate, we will never find fulfillment and contentment. We will always be hungry. Because the only place to truly find the fulfillment of that itch is in Christ Jesus. And that's what Mary is celebrating. Christ goes hungry, facing temptation. Paul the Apostle talks about how he's content in all circumstances. He's had plenty, he's had nothing, and he finds his contentment in all circumstances. Why? Because his joy is in the one Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Mary is celebrating, that already in this age we get a taste, a joy, an empowerment of the power of heaven itself, that heavenly life that is ours. And so it's not about us trying to make ourselves more impoverished or trying to make ourselves less impoverished and saying, oh, in these circumstances, I will find contentment. The joy 
is understanding that when we truly hunger and thirst after the substance of life and our pursuit of God and our pursuit of Christ, we will be filled. We will find our exaltation and our humiliation of coming before the great Redeemer. Mary becomes a picture of this as the outcast orphan, the new Eve, who is the one who truly finds her life and her Messiah. As we find Elizabeth in all her prestige, where does she find her life and her joy? Not in the delivery of her son, but in the redeeming mercy of our God. We go on and we consider verses 54 and 55. Why does God do this? Holy is his name. We're not able to come into his presence by our own power. The the fools of Babel tried to do that. It didn't end well for them. Verses 54 and 55 is where we find the way we encounter God truly. In the understanding of his mercy, in the understanding of his covenantal promises he has made, in the fulfillment of those promises, as he spoke to Abraham, as he promised life, as he promised a triumphant seed would arise in history, the Lord has made good on his promise. It is not that we have come to God and we are able to conquer him, but it is God who has conquered us. And holy as his name has come to us, taken an unholy, unworthy people, and has made us worthy to come into his presence for the sake of Christ. Because notice verse 50. Where does Mary, or what does Mary fundamentally celebrate in the midst of this song? As she leads us in the praise of our God. What does she celebrate? The mercy to those who fear him. From generation to generation. This is a mercy that has no end. This is how the holy God comes to an unholy people. That we are those who do not find our exaltation in and of ourselves. But as we humble ourselves before the great Lord, this is where we find our joy. Mary, in the typology of this, if I can use that language with the advent of Christ, becomes a very picture, doesn't she? The irony, Eve, mother of living, what does she do? She brings life or she brings death. Life, but we have martyrdom. We, we have suffering. We, we don't really find the fulfillment, right? Brings life. That's what her name means. Mary, meaning rebellion. Miriam, re- rebel, is what it really means. It's in the rebel that we find life. Why? Because as she is the rebel, what does she recognize as a true life? Bowing her knee to her Savior, magnifying her God, and finding life in him. It's really just a celebration of Psalm 103, isn't it? That that's going on in verse 50. A celebration of the Lord looking upon an unworthy people, this creation, this world being unsatisfying, unfulfilling, but knowing that in the Lord's covenant mercy, as we draw near, we have life in him. So our God is the one who secures life. Our God is the one who overturns the rebellion. It is our God who's the one who's humbling the exalted. Elizabeth, the exalted one, doesn't find her life in herself, but bows her knee to the ultimate Messiah. 
Mary, the humble one, meaning rebel, is the one who brings into history the true one of life. And even she herself, in the midst of that exaltation, must magnify her God, seeing herself as merely a vessel being used in the Lord's purpose of covenant history to bring into history the triumphant Christ. And so in conclusion then, when we ask, why is this this, this song here in scripture, what, what is this ultimately celebrating? What is this ultimately communicating to us? How is this such a magnificent song? Well, it's a magnificent song because ironically it celebrates humility. As we recognize God is holy. God is the one who is unattainable, if you will. If we just looked at us, we looked at God, and we just laid out the theology of God, and if there's no mercy, if there's no covenant, he's unattainable. We're, we're never going to come into his presence. But the song celebrates that the, the human race who tried to secure life through their own means, through their own ways, through their own wisdom, through their own exaltations, who tried to, to conquer the great God of heaven, they never triumphed. The only way to truly find life is to magnify the Lord, to humble oneself before the living God, living by the redemptive mercy of the great King, and recognizing that in the redemptive mercy of the great King, we have life. Ironically, using the vessel whose name means rebel, the Lord brings true life as his means to glory. Let us then sojourn under the sun, recognizing the significance of Christ, the ultimate one who was exalted, who has humbled himself, taking on the flesh, humbles himself to living a perfect life, humbles himself to death on a cross, and is exalted in his resurrection. That it's as we humble ourselves and our Redeemer, we too move from death to life in him. Let us then continue to magnify the Lord as we think about his mercy, of why such a holy God would want to commune with such an unholy people, and why such a holy God would want to redeem such a rebellious people, and why such a holy God would bring us into his rest. But this is the glory of our redemption that our Lord has done such a thing. Let us walk then in that humility of recognizing that as we humble ourselves before our Redeemer, we have life and we have it abundantly in him. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, we would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.